Hello there, and welcome to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Super excited that you're here, and I want to welcome to the show, Drew Whitson. What's going on, Drew? Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm a partner in crime. Hey, uh, Drew, you just had, you closed a deal recently, which is really exciting. Tell us about that a little bit. I did. I was super excited. We just closed this last Wednesday. I bought a mid-rise apartment in Memphis, Tennessee, in one of the strongest sub-markets in that city. Uh, we're very excited about it. It's a great opportunity for our investors. Although I did something pretty unique on this transaction, I ended up using some $1031 to get it closed. But isn't that kind of, that's, that's, isn't that hard to do with a syndication? Yes, it actually is pretty hard. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you why. I'm not sure I'll do it again, Michael. And here's a couple of reasons why. Uh, one is we needed to raise, you know, five and a half million dollars. And we got probably a third of it from five different 1031 investors that we had worked with here locally in Minnesota. Whole bunch of challenges around getting this thing done. We did it. But let me tell you, we, I got a few more gray hairs getting this thing put together. One was, uh, it's pretty complicated. Like there was a lot of extra legal fees needed to sort of set up a tenancy in common structure. Uh, we had to set up a Delaware uh, disregarded entities in order to have control. We needed a tenancy in common agreement. Uh, and probably one of the most difficult things about this transaction simply was that we didn't have control over those dollars. So while we had commitments from our investors that they were going to purchase this asset alongside of us as co-owners, you never know till the day you close because those funds aren't in my account. They're in their account with their qualified intermediary. So we learned a lot. It was a ton. Uh, I'm not sure I would do it again, but there clearly is a need. There clearly is demand for people who can provide solutions for 1031 exchanges in this marketplace. Well, the thing there's so much money in 1031 exchanges. There's so many people just in their in their primary residence alone and both coasts, for example, build up so much equity. And if they were to sell, they'd have to do a 1031 exchange. And 1031 exchanges are somewhat complicated, but it also forces the non-investor to start looking themselves for another thing to buy. And they're not even, they don't even know anything about commercial real estate. Now they're being forced into that. And, and worse, they have this clock ticking now to actually get all this stuff done. It's, it's insane and complicated. And the worst is we can't really help them because the 1031 exchange is kind of incompatible with syndication. Now you guys got it done, but it wasn't really a syndication. You Did you guys have passive investors in a deal in addition to the 1031 exchanges? We did. For the total capital that we needed for this transaction, about a third of it came from a 1031 investors. The other two thirds of it came from a traditional syndication structure. Wow. Uh, and I do need to emphasize that our 1031 investors aren't actually our investors. They're co-owners in the property. Right, and so right, we, right. Had a re we had an agreement set up across the ownership of the, co of the company. The owning entity that said helped us give us some control as the syndicators over their ownership and as well as an agreement on uh, how capital is distributed. So they're they're co-owners with us, uh, but then we have an agreement across the ownership in order to help sort of decide how that property gets managed. Well, I had a conversation with Paul Moore recently, and he, he told me about this thing that he was doing. He's, he has a fund, which is nothing new, uh, and yeah. he's also gotten into some different asset classes. But he told me about this Delaware statutory trust or the DST. And as he was talking about it, it's another def tax deferred strategy. And I, as he was telling it more, I was like leaning in and leaning in and leaning in because it solves so many of these 1031 exchange problems that you obviously overcame, uh, but it's not something that you would probably do again. And uh, and we got really close one time and didn't pull the trigger on it. And it solves these things. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I'm, I got a strategy here because we can't really accommodate 1031 exchange investors. And there's so much money out 
there. You know, and these poor guys and gals have a real hard time placing it. If they screw it up, they're going to pay taxes on it. So I asked Paul on the show here. We're going to talk about and get really deep on this DST. And Drew, I think you're going to be surprised. So let's get right in the show with Paul Moore. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your hosts, Michael Block. Paul, welcome to the show today. Great to be here again, Michael. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, you had made a really cool discovery, which has been around for a while, but a wonderful thing called the Delaware Statutory Trust or DST. And when you told me about it, I was like, man, I got to have you back on the show because it is fabulous. And uh, we're taking it very seriously. We're looking into it ourselves. But before we get into yet another tax deferred strategy, Paul, talk about the 1031 exchange, because that is the one tax deferred strategy that people actually have heard of. And it's, of course, a fabulous thing. And people understand the benefits of a 1031 exchange, but they may not understand the disadvantages. So let's just get right into some of the things maybe that aren't so great with 1031 exchange. I got a call from a, a guy in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and he uh, he saw me on Bigger Pockets, and he said, "Hey, you're right down the road. Please come meet with my father. It's really urgent." So I did. He was selling his furniture store, and he had an eight hundred thousand dollar gain that he had been so excited about living off the passive income from for years. So he did the ten thirty one. He was like in day thirty of this forty five day window. Michael, I've got a theory. I think that the IRS had a bad day, the decade that they made the 1031 regulations. I think they were kind of mad that they lost the Starker lawsuit, and they put in such egregious paperwork and deadlines and all kinds of hassles that if not done perfectly, the 1031 wouldn't work. Well, 2016, like today, was a seller's market, and so he was panicking because he didn't have a replacement property. He only had 15 days to go to name three and he had named one. And then he realized it was like an eight, four or eight plex for student housing. And he realized it was terribly overpriced and it wouldn't even cash flow. And furthermore, he would go into his sunset years in his late seventies dealing with toilets, tenants, and trash because he didn't want to get a property manager so he could get all the cash flow. He was really upset. So he said, can you help? And I said, uh, I'll see. Maybe we can bring you in as a tenant in common with the deal we're working on right now in Chattanooga. Well, he named the apartment complex. He named us, I think, and then another one. And the apartments, he realized, there's just no way I want to spend my retirement years doing that. The Chattanooga deal, when we got out on site, we realized it had black mold and we canned the deal. This guy went ahead canceled the 1031 and paid the tax. Michael, I cannot tell you how many people I hear that have stories like this. A huge percentage of people either miss the deadline or they get pressured into buying the wrong asset or they overpay or they buy something that's going from the frying pan into the fire with hassle and they they don't like it. And so this is what the 10, this is the unintended consequence of a 1031 exchange in a seller's market. Yeah. And, and the worst is, see, you, I, you, you have to, as a buyer, a 1031, but you have to disclose that you're 1031 to the seller, right? Do you not? In most states, you have to disclose it and you know what that causes. Yeah. Well, a lot of loss of leverage for, for one. Right. 
I mean, right. the seller knows that you're attempting to want to change the clock's ticking, you know, and you discover something. It's like, you know, I'd like right. to, I would like to request a seller credit. Well, no, sorry, go pound sand because That's you've exactly already right. <laughs> ticked off a bunch of, you know, hours. And, and, and the other thing also, so that's one, and, and we see 1031 exchange buyers all the time overpaying because they're saving so much in tax, but they're still right. paying something for a property. It makes no sense at all, cash flow wise or, or anything at, at all. Anything else, there's a, is anything else there's an issue with 1031 that you can think of? Well, I mean, I, I just want to kind of go back to what you just said. You know, I had a guy the other day from San Francisco. He made a million or two dollar, a million or two million dollars profit on this big house he was selling in the Bay Area. And he said, look, I don't care if I have to overpay or if I can make cash flow. I've just got to save money on taxes. And I just thought, you know, I just wonder if he's going to regret that, you know? You see it all. You, you see the, uh, the, the tax tail wagging the dog and people make terrible decisions trying to get into just to avoid those taxes. Some people are allergic to taxes and it, it causes them to make suboptimal decisions. Paul, what about, uh, what about reverse 1031 exchanges? I've heard a lot about those recently. What, what are the advantages of, of doing or disadvantages of doing a reverse exchange? You know, I don't really understand the reverse exchange as well as I should. I Years ago, I came to the conclusion that it looked really, really complex. I've heard that instead of $1,000, it's like $5,000. And it's, it seems to me that you've got to get a funding source along the way. What do you think? I've heard the same thing. They're very expensive to do. They're a little more complicated and it doesn't take too long before a lot of these expenses and time end up falling short of your investment goals and you, you probably would have been better off not even chasing that. And what, the other main advantage of 1031 exchanges is that they're very incompatible with syndications. Now, we've oh, actually, yeah. we actually brought someone in or we tried to bring someone into a deal and it was god-awful expensive, really complicated. And at the end of the day, it didn't really make sense for anyone. Now, Drew, I know you just recently closed a, a deal with uh, several 1031 exchangers in a syndication. Can you talk about the uh, joy of that? Yeah, you know, it was, we were very fortunate to have a couple of local investors that had some 1031 funds that were able to put in. But I got to tell you, Michael, there's some big disadvantages to doing a 1031 as well. To be clear, 1031, you do not have 1031 investors in a syndication. You have 1031 co-owners in a syndication. There's a big difference, right? Yes, they are not investing right. in your syndication. They are investing alongside of you. And so while that is a great way to sort of acquire a property, um, the way you're able to sort of control the whole asset is using a couple things like a tenancy in common agreement that says, yeah. as we buy this property together, we agree as co-owners that this is how capital is going to be distributed. This is how we argue, or that how we delineate how ownership is going to be structured. So it's, it is a great way to find some assets. It does cost a little bit more legally. And frankly, you don't have control over the deal as a syndicator. We don't know till the day we close whether a 1031 funds are actually going to show up from our co-owners, right? They have, to, they have to send them in the last day. We don't control that capital. So they're a little more expensive. I think it gives you access to doing some great deals and you're in, you have some very motivated co-owners to do a 1031, but you lose a little bit of control in the deal and you do end up spending a little bit more uh, in legal fees. So let's talk about the alternative, Paul. Let's talk about Delaware Statutory Trust or DST in short. Let's introduce uh, us to a little bit to that. What, what is that? So a Delaware Statutory Trust is a legal entity that allows the a management group to acquire an asset and then sell fractional shares to folks who are either 1031 exchange investors, or they could be people that just had a big gain they want to shelter, or just somebody who wants to get a stabilized passive cash flow 
hopefully with upside. This DST is, like I said, it's 1031 friendly. So people can come in and bring in a portion of the money. So a $10 million DST, they can bring in 100,000, half a million or whatever, which points back to another disadvantage of the 1031. I forgot to mention that is you've got to have a cash match and a total price match. It's very, very hard with all the other pressures I mentioned to find the right match for the cash you have and the, the debt or the total you know, investment. But a, 10, a DST allows you to almost effortlessly find a match for your situation. Well, how long has this been around? Because uh, it's not something that people really talk about too much. Is it kind of a new thing in the tax law maybe? Yeah, so it started in 2000, between 2002 and four, it became popular. And there are only uh, really relatively few providers that do this still. Providers as in what? Is, these are like REITs? I or should say. What, what do you mean by yeah, providers? These are, uh, these are operators, you know, companies like Inland or um, some of the other, there's, there's large companies that do these and that's all they do. And these are sold through broker dealers, which is an advantage because you get to see a wide variety from one guy. One guy or gal can show you all the DSTs out there practically. At the same time, the disadvantage is you're putting a lot of gas in their BMW when you pay the commission on the front end. Okay, so there's a lot. There's a lot of commission. Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk. Let's look at the DST from both sides. Let's talk the D, the DST first from the passive investor side. And I think one of the main differences also is typically in 1031 exchanges when you have a million dollars of equity. You know, like Drew was saying, a 1031 exchange investor is not really a passive investor. They're really an owner. And a lot of times, a 1031 exchange investor becomes the operator, uh, even if, if they want to mm-hmm. or not. And with a DST, you are, it's a little bit more like a syndication, uh, it sounds like yes. to me, where yes. a 1031 exchange investor actually becomes passive. Let's, let's talk a look from the passive side. What, is the, what does it look like from the passive side? Talk a bit about how do, how do you get involved as a passive investor? Maybe what are some of the returns? Uh, what yeah. does that feel like to invest in a DST? Yeah, quick story. So about a year and a half ago, one of my investors called me and he said, hey, you know, I just turned 72. I finally sold my law practice. And he said, I've been kicking the can down the road for 30 or 40 years on this this series of 1031s. He said, my health isn't the best. And I don't know, I am absolutely not going to pay this massive depreciation recapture and capital gain that I've built up. I am definitely going to swap till I drop. At the same time, I got a place in Fort Myers and a place his home was in Kentucky. He said, I want to spend some more time playing tennis and playing with the grandkids. I don't want to manage another property. So he had $2.1 million and he said, I want to put it into your your syndicated fund. I said, it's just not going to work. And for a lot of the reasons we talked about, the tenant, you know, we weren't willing to do a tenant in common and all that. And so I said, I'll try to find you a tenant in common placement. So I, I actually talked to a few syndicators and there just was no match. The timing wasn't right. His 45 day clock was ticking. He called me back about a month later and he said, I am so happy. I discovered what's called a Delaware statutory trust. It allowed him to be passive. It allowed him to match the amount of money, which was like $2.1 million cash. It allowed him to not have to go get debt in his name again at age 72. It allowed him to not have to 
find the right property. And, 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 you know, of course with COVID now, this was well before COVID, you know, flying around or look at all these properties was tough this spring. And so it just was a perfect match for him. He was very, very happy except for a few downsides, which we can get into if you want. But the point is it gave him a chance to shop and look at dozens of options and pick the right one for him. Yeah, and that's a, a main advantage is that you mentioned we, a 10th hour change investor has to sit there and literally look at deals himself because he's an owner. Right. He's an active owner. And a, you know, an, a DST investor is more like a past investor in a, in, a, in a syndication. Now, you did talk about some downsides. So let's talk about a downside before, you know, we don't want to be a one-sided uh, no. you know, perspective on this. So what, what are some of the disadvantages of a DST? Yeah, so one disadvantage is that you don't get to talk to the syndicator. I mean, if I'm investing in your one of your deals, I can talk directly to somebody from your team, Michael. I can talk to you or somebody on your team and say, "Hey, can I go out and see it myself? Can I kick the tires? Can I what are the you know, I can do due diligence really well." With a DST in general, it's hard to do due diligence because you're just talking to a third party, which is a broker. Number two, that broker is getting a very steep fee, like six to 9%. So if you invest a million dollars, let's just take my friend with $2.1 million, he was looking at north of 125,000 in fees. He didn't want to pay that fee. And so that was really painful to him. Another one that I can't understand, Michael, and that is, Every property should have some upside. I mean, things generally appreciate. I get that these are extremely stabilized assets, which is one of the benefits of the DST, by the way. They're very stable. But most DSTs, 25 of the 30 we just reviewed carefully, had no appreciation upside uh, projected at the end. But here's the weird thing. The DST rules say that all that appreciation, all of it has to go to the cash investors. None of it goes back to the general manager. So I don't understand that. And so what it means is that the actual returns on these are typically not very high. So they're, they're cash on cash objects really is what, what they, it's really what they are. They're cash on yes. cash return. Now, you talked about these broker dealers, but DSTs are not limited to broker dealers. And in fact, I mean, you created a DST for your fund, for your buying mobile home parks and other assets. So obviously, you yeah. guys are not broker dealers or may, maybe you are. But so in other words, the limitation of me as a passive investor not being able to talk to operator in, in your case is now removed because I can talk directly to you. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So- we created DST and we wanted to deal with the three big things we saw as downsides. Number one, we people couldn't talk to us directly. They couldn't do due diligence. It'd be really hard to go out on the property. Well, all that's possible now because we are the operator. We call it invest direct for that reason. Number two, there's no commission up front at all. So you're not losing what I would call shrinkage, you know, six to 9% typical fees on the front end are not there, which means it's going back in the investor's pocket. And third, in addition to 6% cash on cash return that we're projecting, which is a pretty stable number, we're also projecting a four to 6% annual appreciation, which is all coming on the day of the closing of the DST at the end. So the total returns we're projecting at least are 10 to 12%. Okay, so if I understand this correctly, the way that DST laws are, are written is that all of the upside, all the returns really has to go to the investors, meaning that the operator, let's say you and I and operators in general, 
how are they compensated? Yeah, we just take a hundred percent acquisition fee on the front end. No, I'm, okay, that was a joke. Um, no, seriously, uh, there there are fees like property management. We're taking a normal property management fee of six or seven percent, which is a norm for for a um, mobile home park or self storage. If it was multifamily, we'd be taking three and a half percent, I imagine. Uh, there'd be an acquisition fee. There's a very small liquidation fee at the end. And then there's something called scrape, which is beyond the, uh, it's probably beyond the depth of what we really want to go into now. But I'll just say this. If we are able to make consistently more than the 6% from cash flow as we go, there is a chance that we can, as an operator, take that little bit of extra. So if we're able to average 7% instead of 6 we could get that extra 1%. It, it seems to me like, I mean, get, let me get straight. So because normally we do value adds, okay? We, we generate right. a lot of equity, high RR. So the DST for that would probably not be so great for the operator because we wouldn't get the ben, any benefit of that. So is it accurate to say that if, if we're an evaluated operator, we, whatever, three to five years, we build all this equity in this deal. Could we then sell it to a DST that we can t- we control moving forward? No, that's exactly what we did. And that was another disadvantage I didn't mention of a typical Delaware statutory trust. Everybody, of course, these experts like Inland, I mean, they're buying such safe assets. I mean, imagine buying a Walgreens store right. with a 30-year lease on it. That's pretty safe, although I did see one shut down recently. But overall, it's pretty safe. But one of the disadvantages of buying any property, and we all know this, is that there are unknowns. There might be some mold we missed, or there might be a broken wrought iron pipe that goes bad the month or year after we buy it. All these things are possible, and that's possible with this too. But if you've already owned and operated an asset, You've got the branding down, the property manager down, the financial system down, the marketing down. All that is done, and then you flip it from your value-add syndication at the third-party appraised value, which is, of course, what I think everybody would do if they would do this. Then the sellers get a great thing because they're going to get that evaluation. You know, There's no broker fees because it's being transferred from A to B. And then the, the next day after the DST takes over, it's the same property manager, same marketing, website, everything's the same. And there's very little unknown at that point because they've already been operated, like you said, for three to five years. That provides a lot of security and stability. So in that particular case, if we sold to a DST that we continue to, to operate as managers, could some investors participate in that and some could not? Is there a choice there? Or like with a 1031 exchange, everybody has to kind of like vote together as, as mm-hmm. one. So can some dissent and some move forward in a DST? Yeah, so that the investors in the first asset would be completely closed out. And so they would be able to sell this. But if they like the idea of shielding a lot of that income and, and not just paying all the depreciation recapture and the capital gains and everything else they paid out of that, they might want to invest in a syndication or if they want a real stable asset, let's say they're really obsessed with just a flat five, six, seven percent cash flow, they might want to invest in a DST and that would be a good one since they already are well familiar with it. Yeah, that makes uh, that makes a lot of sense. Now, what what kind of you talked about the kind of investor that invests in a DST? What kind of investor does so? Let's say obviously, if someone is in a syndication and they move into the DST to not pay taxes, defer paying taxes, that's investor number one. 
But what kind of other investors typically are attracted to this kind of DST? So you've got the 1031 exchange investor, which we've been talking about. Right. But anybody with a passive gain or a capital gain or a passive depreciation recapture can also benefit, at least now. Because as we know, in December 2017, our friends inside the Beltway passed these wonderful bonus depreciation uh, opportunities. And now the other benefit of a DST is the assets treated just the same. The cost segregation study is the same. The bonus depreciation is the same. And some of these assets like mobile home parks and modularly constructed self-storage they can easily have 100% of the equity, the cash investment, depreciated in year one. In fact, even more than 100% in some cases. So that's very interesting. So we can do, still do the cost segregation, still do the bonus depreciation that we pass on to the DST investors. What yep. about the depreciation recapture, which is always kind of an issue when you sell? Does it kind of reset at the time the asset transfers to the DST or what happens to, the, to that basis? In the asset itself you're starting over. Wow. So you're starting over with a new cost seg study, new depreciation, mm. all that. For the investor though, and this is what I didn't really understand until now, until really recently, the depreciation, the capital gains and the depreciation recapture that they're faced with as we you know, record this, it's late in 2020, as they're faced with this big tax bill, well, if the new asset they invest in, of course, that could be your fund or my fund as well, but it's the same with the DST, they might be able to get a tremendous loss in year one to offset those gains from the past. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. I mean, in my mind, my, my head's spinning a little bit, Paul, here, because what I'm thinking is, you know, one of the things that we're always forced to do, Drew, and you know, is we, we're, you know, we sell our, our assets in five to seven years to get the high IRR, to give our investors a liquidity event, because that's what we promised them versus holding it on. But we really don't never want to sell anything. I mean, we don't really mm -hmm. want to sell anything, which is why we like to cash out refinance because it kind of it gives you a hybrid. It gives you a liquidity event, you know, and if the, if the investors get 75% of their money back, you know, they're going to be they put less pressure on you to actually sell the asset. Okay. But, but that's typically why we sell asset is because we want to keep moving the money around. Now, why would we not, instead of selling the asset in year five or seven as usual, why don't we then sell it to a DST? Right? Does, I mean, wouldn't we always do that? Doesn't that make so much sense? It makes sense to me. And <laughs> I may ask me again in two years, but as long as we're paying a fair price to the former investors and they're not right. feeling like, wait a minute, what? And as long as the new investors don't feel like they're overpaying, mm. you know, then of course the, the third party, you know, appraisal uh, helps deal with that then I think it's a very fair thing for everybody. You know, you asked what other type of people want to invest in this. I talked to somebody the other day who's, you know, they were a little older and they said, look, I don't care about your appreciation. I believe it. If it happens, that's wonderful. Just give me a five, six, 7% annual return and I can live off that. And I'm like, well, that, okay. So that's another type of person that loves DSTs. That's amazing. Paul, does the, the pull forward of the basis go into the DST as well? Or do you get it sort of a fresh set of downs there to depreciate? Fresh set. Fresh set. Okay. That's because that's a, that's a huge advantage over a 1031 exchange is that you, solely, you can only carry forward the basis and any incremental value on the property to use that bonus depreciation. So that you're really saying we can have a full set of 
depreciation allocated to the DST? Yes. In fact, I cleared that with my CPA about an hour ago, and he said that there are times when people are about to do a 1031 exchange, and I'm selling a mobile home park, actually, in about three weeks. And he said, honestly, you might be just as well to just sell it and have the potential tax and offset it by investing in a steeply depreciating new mm -hmm. asset. You know, it, it attracts a different investor because, you know, you told me that 100% of your investors right now are 1031 exchange investors, right? In your DST, DST fund. That's right. Because they're so hard to place in a syndication. We're always excluding them. These poor guys right. and gals, they have to go out and actually go find an apartment or triple net themselves. Like, who does that? They're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And and, and it's it's so hard to do. And now you're attracting the 1031 exchange investor in the same way that you, that you have a syndication. And I think that's super powerful. And it gives these people a place to actually invest that continues having cash flow and even some upside. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it really is. And what my CPA said an hour ago, and again, this is probably more depth than we want to go too deeply into. He said, if someone's selling with a capital gain, they're going to have a 20%, for example, long-term capital gain and let's say that is a million on a million dollars that might be two hundred thousand dollar gain he said but when you're going into a new set as, as drew said a new depreciation schedule you're going to be offsetting at ordinary income rates which are perhaps 30 or 37 percent you're actually getting the bonus depreciation at a higher level so on that million dollars you put in your bonus depreciation might be Three hundred or three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars when you only had a two hundred thousand dollar gain to offset in the first place. That's the power of this bonus depreciation from the new tax law. All right. So, what are some of the limitations or downsides of a DST? Because I mean, it sounds almost too perfect, but nothing ever really is. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So, I already mentioned the high fees, high commissions. Another one's loss of control. I mean, let's face it. We all know investors who don't want to give up control. Even if they say they do, they want to stay involved. They want to make decisions. If that's you, don't invest in a DST. Don't invest in a syndication in general because you're not going to have control anymore. Another one is limited upside. I mean, like you said, Michael, if you get those high RRs and all those value adds in three to five years, well, there's probably not going to be a whole lot of meat on the bone for the DST. In fact, the DST is structured specifically to be extremely stable. And so as a stable asset, there's not going to be a tremendous amount of appreciation. Another one is the illiquidity of it. I mean, let's face it, if you're going into a DST and two years later you decide you want to cash out, even with the publicly traded ones, through the broker-dealers, I mean, there's just no easy provision to cash out. It's possible, but it's not easy to do that. And so those are some of the things. One more I'd throw out is that even though there's nothing in the law that says you have to be accredited to invest in a DST, 100% of the DSTs I've seen have only accredited investors. Interesting. And the other thing also from an operator perspective, they're probably not cheap to set up these DSTs. You're right. There are a lot of legal fees. I mean, the legal fees on the CMBS debt we had were, I mean, I, I thought that they were just horrible. And then we had our own legal fees to set up the DST, which was that much again. And so, yeah, there's a lot of fees to set it up. And honestly, Michael, 
I won't do a $5 million one, $5 no. million one again. I'm going to go for the 10 or $20 million one like you and I talked about a few yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, the, the thing is, I mean, as an operator, because you can't pay yourself on excess equity or exactly. cash flow, you can only really make, uh, only be compensated on reasonable management fees, right? And even if you charge 1% or 2%, there's a cap of what you can do. And, and uh, given all the startup fees for the DST, uh, it may not make sense to do it for a $5 million fund. And, and, and therefore, probably the DSTs that you probably see typically are upwards of 20 and, and 50 million. They're typically 20, 30, 50 million, and I've even seen $200 million wow. uh, DST before. Yeah, that's awesome. Paul, this has been great. You're a, a bit of a trailblazer in this stuff, and I love that. And you have this, this great fund that you have open right now. Uh, tell us a little bit how people can uh, can contact and get in touch with you. Yeah, they can get hold of me on bigger pockets, but the best way to get hold of me is just go to my website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. Yeah, and you, you you have a fantastic little free ebook, right, that I'm sure you'll share with people that talks about some of the stuff, the 1031 exchange and DST. So uh, make sure you guys yeah. contact uh, Paul about that. It's a good looking piece here. Summarize a lot of the things that we talked about, though we went a little deeper than we did in that little ebook. So I really enjoyed that. Paul, thanks so much for being on the show today. Hey, it was great to be here. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Drew. Thank you, Paul. Uh, Drew, that's pretty interesting. Doesn't that kind of solve some of the issues with a 1031 exchange for you? It really does. I think it opens things, you know, just just wide open for some potential here. One of the great things about doing a 1031s uh, is the ability to defer taxes and continue this investment without having to sort of have this recognition of gain. But the problem is, is you're really limited on a lot of the scope here. And so this DST really solves a lot of those problems and gives some advantages uh, to those that are willing to sort of dive into this. Well, I've been looking for a solution like this for a while because the thing that irritates me more than anything else is having to sell a property after five or seven years because we said we would to give our investors their money back. But now everybody's got to pay taxes and this is awful. And so now, theoretically, once we stabilize the property, for those investors who want to defer paying taxes, we can move them into a DST and we can continue paying them cash and cash return on their, on their investment if that's what they want to do. I think it's fabulous. Absolutely. I mean, many of our investors are speak to how they're using this as a way to create a nice passive portfolio stream. And while we love creating great revenue uh, and great gains for our investors, sometimes they just don't want their money back after 18 months, right? Sometimes you spend a whole bunch of time getting a property up to speed. It's running smoothly. You've got good tenants, good statistics, good data. Uh, but in order to provide that kind of internal rate of return calculation, you're sort of kind of forced to sell these things. Having this as an alternative gives those investors an opportunity to continue to have additional cash flow. Uh, without having to sort of reseek and find another syndication deal to put that money back into. Yeah, so, so my ideal scenario is, is a traditional value add where in three, whatever, four or five years, we add a lot of value, we then do a cash out refinance return 60 plus percent back to the investors. And then in year, whatever, five, we sell to, to the DST, the tax is deferred, but our investors continue getting cash, cash return on now the reduced equity. It's insane. Oh, it's a great value for investors. It's a great value for the managers and it helps to meet different goals for our investors. Well, exactly right. The, the second same. problem it solves is that we don't have a home for our poor 1031 exchange investors, right? They come to us, Michael, we have this great money, whatever. And we're like, 
so sorry. We can't take it. Now you made it work. I know what the, I know the science project. It must have been because we got very close to doing it one time. And we finally at the end said, Oh my gosh. No, we're not going to do that. So I don't have a good solution in a syndication to a 1031 exchange investor. And there is so much money out there in 1031 exchange. And these poor guys and gals now have this money because they sold a house in San Francisco somewhere. And in order to place it, not pay gains, they have to now are forced to become an active investor. And now they got to hop on a plane and look for deals in Memphis or wherever. And it's like, they're, they're not even, they don't even have the training for that. If you are a capital raiser and you're hearing this now, you should be salivating over the opportunity because this just blew the doors wide open on your ability to raise capital from investors who are sitting on enormous amounts of not only long-term capital gains, but who've owned things for a long time with huge amounts of depreciation recapture. So there's large tax bills. There's, this is really providing a solution for a lot of uh, what a lot of investors are trying to, trying to avoid right now is paying taxes that are high and may go higher. Yeah, so this is so interesting that we're going to look into this uh, from from Nighthawk's uh, equity side and maybe of yourself, Drew. We're going to look into this stuff and look at our professionals. We'll report back to you in a couple months when we have this figured out because I think it's a very exciting possibility that Paul brought to my our collective intention. And I'm really excited about that. If you are in, interested in investing passively in multifamily syndications, uh, check us out at nighthawkequity.com. That's our investment firm. And click the join button. Uh, you can fill out a short form, join our investor club and have a phone conversation with us and then we can have a, a conversation if there's a fit we'll present you with one of our upcoming opportunities we have we just closed on a deal in northern atlanta so we're on the hunt for something else and also uh, drew if you're if for people listening watching this they want to become active investors and that you value mentorship it's something that you feel can help you accelerate your goals and avoid the big mistakes then check out our munching program it's at the the michael blanc com forward slash mentor and we even guarantee results drew because we've done this so many times yeah, no, whether the, the market is hot or low or whether it's COVID, no matter what we're dealing with, we're seeing students be successful in every environment because we teach them ways to find deals and raise capital no matter what's happening. Yeah, we've done this so many times with so many people now that we actually guarantee that you uh, that you will do your first deal in the first 12 months. Otherwise, we'll continue working with you until you do. So we're really excited about that. Uh, set up a free call to explore that. That's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. Okay, great stuff, man. I'm really excited about this DC thing. Thanks so much for your time. Catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.